and welcome back to the Wedgworth Leadership Podcast. My name is Kevin Kent, and I'm excited to be joined by two Class 11 members for today's episode, Philip Heisey and Carlton Johns. Traditionally, we've selected class members to contribute to a blog post or newsletter in which we include in the Wedgworth Wire. But with so much to impact with each seminar, we thought we would continue our conversations and reflection in a podcast in order to share our experiences with everyone, whether you're in the field or on the road. Today's episode is part one of our reflection of the National Seminar, where we traveled to Washington, D.C., Gettysburg, and Kentucky. In part one, Philip and Carlton will discuss D.C. and Gettysburg. But before we dive into our experiences, let's get to know Philip and Carlton a little more. Philip, let's start with you. Introduce yourself and tell us about your involvement in agriculture and natural resources. Well, uh, Philip Heisey, I work for On Top of the World Communities and Colabuck Construction in Ocala, Florida. I uh, grew up in Ocala. I uh, moved here when I was three from Puerto Rico, and I'm the director of landscape operations. Um, I oversee all the landscape installations, landscape maintenance, um, and uh, manage a crew of about 70 people on one side of the company and 12 on the other. Um, uh, I got into landscape or the ag, ag natural resources side actually in, in uh, high school. I uh, was in a, a two-hour block ag class, and one of the last projects we had as, a, as our senior project was to develop a, an irrigation system for our ag farm. And I started with that and kind of didn't know where I wanted to go. Went to play a little small college football in Iowa right out of high school and then came back to Florida and finished my degree up at Florida A&M with uh, landscape design and management. Thanks, Philip. Carlton, let's hear from you. Tell us about yourself and your involvement in agriculture and natural resources. Uh, sure. Um, so my name is Carlton Johns. I'm, uh, I was born and raised in St. Augustine, Florida. Um, my official title is Vice President of, of Tater Farms, where we grow sod and just start growing some citrus. Uh, I'm uh, basically kind of manage just the, the overall, uh, kind of more almost like operations management and just, just keeping the train on the tracks. Um, I've been in ag my whole life. Uh, my dad broke away from the family farm, started this farm. I guess I'm a fifth generation uh, farmer, but um, so grew up, we grew potatoes and cabbage, and then somewhere during my college years, we switched over to sod and, and most recently citrus. Awesome. Well, welcome to the both of you to the podcast. Um, before we get started with our takeaways, we're talking about DC and Gettysburg, which was the first half, if you will, of our national seminar. And um, we also, uh, after D.C. and Gettysburg, went to Kentucky, uh, which um, Derek and Michael will talk about. But I wanted to ask you, um, before we get into the takeaways there, what was your favorite part of uh, the national seminar, if you had to pick one? Yeah, I specifically enjoyed the Gettysburg portion of it, um, never, never having been to, to Gettysburg. And then having the uh, ability to have Colonel Bossler and Colonel McLaughlin lead us through that, and and because initially I was I was trying to understand how we would tie. I mean, there's a lot of leadership in the military, but how they would tie the Battle of Gettysburg to a leadership uh, component. And when I got there, uh, we actually I actually sat at the table and had dinner with Colonel Bossler and. Uh, that that gentleman probably has some of the best stories I could probably retell, or probably couldn't retell. But you know, it, it really brought to light after hearing hearing that how they were going to tie it together, and uh, I took away a lot of 
good information that uh, I'm implementing today. Awesome. I have never been to Gettysburg uh, either, and that was my first adventure there. And it was it was really neat to to see not only the history, but to apply the history in the context that we were there for in terms of leadership and ag. And uh, just to get more than just the stories out of that, I think was a really cool experience. Carlton, what about you? Yeah. What was your what was your favorite part of the national seminar? Well, um, so I would also I would agree that uh, Gettysburg was was probably my favorite. Uh, just from a, I, I'd been to Gettysburg several times when I was a kid, kicking and screaming, uh, you know, <laughs> being dragged across the battlefield on foot uh-huh. <laughs> with my family. Um, it, it happened to be right outside of where our, our potato chip, our main potato chip uh, customer was. So we basically went up there and visited them every summer, and we usually stayed in Gettysburg. So, uh, but but having the perspective uh, now being older than the people fighting rather than, um, you know, younger, just the, the appreciation for it, and, and then also having uh, Colonel Vossler and, and um, Jeff McCoslin uh giving us the history of it really they paint a picture it almost kind of came to life you could see how it's, you you almost could feel the battle uh, taking place as they took this to each stop but i will say you know to be a little different on on the washington side um my overall impression of because i have not been to washington again since i was i was a child uh washington was much cleaner than i remembered it and you know the the museums, the monuments. Um, it just, especially that that nighttime tour that we took. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really, it's a pretty place, and I and I don't, I didn't have that impression of it. I mean, the subways were clean. That you know everything was. It was a nice place. You felt safe. That you know there weren't homeless people everywhere. I mean, it was you know not what you hear or what my impression of of Washington was. I'd say one of the one of the takeaways. I guess it was kind of right off the bat. Was was with uh, uh, Ryan Clancy, Ryan Clancy, who was the I guess he he's a, a political strategist, but he was also a, a former uh, speech writer for Joe Biden during his, his vice president presidential terms. But uh, he he is helped found a a group called No Label No Labels, which was a nonprofit. Um, basically, the whole the whole goal, as sad as it is, is to literally get people, uh, representatives from, from both sides of the aisle, uh, literally to just get to know each other um, on a personal level, you know, speak to each other uh, so that, you know, in the hopes that they can actually have some discourse and, and can talk to each other, respect each other, and, and maybe listen and try and, and actually start compromising and, and um, <clears throat> making nonpartisan decisions uh, once again, which... You know, the, the the tone was echoed over and over again uh, by by most of our political speakers that most most divided uh, Washington's ever been, and you know, kind of kind of a lot of doom and gloom. Which, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. I guess that comes with with the, the territory these days. But but it was kind of a unique. Uh, you know, they've been working at it for ten years, and literally they're just started hosting meet and greets kind of social gatherings to literally just get people to talk to each other from one side of the aisle to another. And it, it has spun off. Uh, there's a 
what's called a problem solvers caucus, which is kind of basically members was formed by members of the the no labels group. Uh, you know, mainly representatives. I think they had a few senators kind of involved or supporting, but mainly mainly representatives. And um, it's actually become a from, from the way he told us a, a fairly influential caucus. Um, you know, just helping to get some uh, collaboration between between parties. Yeah, some of the, the notes I, I recall from that too was the the Problem Solvers Caucus is a 58 member caucus, but you know there's you know things like gun control. Their their idea of gun control and, and changing that is maybe instead of calling it gun control, which is you know, for, for many of us can be problematic to go to gun safety. Uh, that's one of the things I had written down. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how, how does that happen with a such a partisan uh, D.C. right now? And one of the other notes I had was from when uh, we met with Chuck Connor, who's the CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. He said it's the most partisan D.C. he's been involved with in 41 years. And, and that's uh, just shocking to to hear i mean we see it you know every day on the news but to actually hear somebody up there say it is, is one thing um but from an agriculture's perspective too though and something that we always talk about you know in our class i know we've mentioned it several times is and it came directly from chuck connor's mouth was that ag needs to speak with one voice and that was a uh <clears throat> yeah I, I guess not eye-opening but you know it's um, you know, the, the, what we're saying is not uh, uh, unique to us or our group in Florida. It's, it's across the, uh, the country. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It confirmed a lot of what we've heard in terms of from speakers at all levels. Everywhere we've been to, we've heard somebody say, you know, agriculture has to be represented by one voice. We have to speak with one voice. And, and that definitely confirmed that. we We can't add to the the partisan conversations um, or the divide uh, if we want to get anything done. We've, we've got to speak with that one voice there. And I think that's, that's challenging it, it, um, just like with any other type of legislation or policy. But uh, I think that, I think that agriculture is in a, a really unique uh, space and that we can all sit down at the table and have conversations about um, labor or water and, and try to figure out what we can agree on um, and and speak on on those issues and those topics and, and start with with that uh, you know unified message there let's uh let's talk about our next takeaway um, <clears throat> I would say another um, actually happened it was, it was I think the next day uh, so we, we almost had a farm beer day where we had four or five different people from uh, the American Farm Bureau came and spoke to us, but one just from from an ag perspective that I thought was um, was pretty pretty eye opening. It was uh, Shelby Myers. She's a, she's an economist uh, for Farm Bureau. She spoke to us. She kind of was giving us a rundown. Uh, you know, carbon markets are are kind of a new thing or a trending thing. It seemed like it was going to be more for timber farms and maybe like program crops. You know no-till out in the midwest and whatnot but uh, a couple things a couple other statistics she had for us that since 1950 uh, ag had increased their output by 287 percent while their inputs 
had remained the same. Uh, and then and she followed that up with another statistic that said that uh, in 1990, we would need 100 million more acres to produce the same amount of food that we're producing today uh, than, we, than we have, than we're farming today, which uh, kind of just, you know, when you're in it every day, you don't realize, you know, you, you do research, spend money, try new things, invest in technologies for, for efficiencies and, and to, to boost production. And, you know, geneticists are constantly creating new, you know, new and better seeds and plant varieties. But when you don't ever, you don't ever see a number or usually don't see a number or hear a number like that to realize just what all that work is actually going towards. And that's pretty staggering uh, statistic, I thought. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say, you know, we we know we know that storyline of that we're producing more with with less or you know the same for a number of years. But even being involved in agriculture, I have not heard that statistic before, and so I know the people that need to hear that statistic have also not heard that as well. So that it was it was shocking um, to hear that number um, and and to see and, and hear kind of hear it put in in terms of numbers i think that was that was a really a wake-up call for me yeah something else shelby talked about was that ag is a net negative two percent emitter of greenhouse gas emissions and you know that's totally contradictory of course to what we hear you know with mm-hmm. you know cattle farmers um you know that's the, the, the biggest one that you hear about probably so i just you know there's a lot of good information that came from that yeah, they, that was, and you know, that it was a quick morning that morning that we met with the Farm Bureau folks, but we appreciate them taking yeah. time. They had, uh, they had some other uh, groups uh, in in DC with them that uh, that day, but it was it was exciting to hear uh, each of them and all of their different expertises um, and the the different topics and stuff that they were responsible for. Uh, so we really appreciate them uh, taking time to do that. Let's let's talk about our next takeaway. Um, the uh. That- and I don't know, I think there's still, you know, the, the, our trip to USDA um, was, was a bit awkward, I'll say. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there was, it seemed like we were uh, from a, a foreign land coming into the USDA as an agriculture leadership group. And, and I, I guess that's maybe just a sign of the times. I don't know if it's because COVID what, but I, I from a from an ag perspective, I guess it was that was a a shocking takeaway for me to uh, of what we dealt with there. I, I don't know if that's pertinent to this conversation. It's going to get deleted or not. But <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'll, I'll I'll back you up. Yeah, I, I would second that. So you're not out there on an island. On your yeah. Island. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, it's I don't think we got a whole lot of questions answered there. You know, just being blunt. You know. Um, there were there were some pointed questions that were kind of skirted around, and it's kind of frustrating that that you know here we are an ag leadership class with several farmers that are are needing good responses from the USDA on how we're going to handle things like uh, the USMCA agreement, um, and I know Michael Hill was very vocal and had a great idea, uh, but then maybe that ties into Senator Scott, and I think Senator Scott was probably one of the the uh, uh, best visits I think we could have had that day um, because, you know, he made some points. This is, you, you've got to, 
you've got to make it somebody's problem is what he said, you know, and, and you know, that's, so, so how does ag make it the USDA's problem of, of some of the issues we see in Florida? Um, because, you know, the, the sugar, sugar is going to get a, a big boat there. Corn and soybeans going to get big boats. So I think the, the vegetable guys going to get left in the dark. Yeah. And I may be seeing it because I'm not a vegetable guy, but that's how it, how it looks to me from the outside looking in. Yeah, I would I would agree that the USDA visit was um, awkward, like you put it there. Uh, it, it just seemed like, you know, we're we're at this um, at this point in in the industry where we're trying to figure out how to get on the same page and tell our story. I wonder too if that agency itself is at its own crossroads of trying to figure out how do we represent. Um, diversity across all these industries, like you mentioned there, you know, representing a grain and vegetable um, and, you know, be all things to everybody. And I wonder too, if, if that's not, that's a challenge of itself there, but also, you know, when you have a change of administration and, you know, the whole dynamics change again. So I think there's a lot of uh, pieces there that they're still trying to figure out too, in terms of how to best represent or, agriculture or figure out what resources we need to provide or, you know, where to go for help. So, you know, I, I agree with that. Um, but it's, it's frustrating too, when we, when we can vocalize the issues and the problems that we're having and, and not really see anything or see any support, uh, yet when they're in, when they're still trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. And I, I would say, uh, yeah, it was definitely awkward and, you know, security was, <laughs> was more uh more strict than than going through the airport quite literally but uh <laughs> one thing is it, it's just kind of reinforced and, and yeah we're not we're not midwest farmers um and, and I, at least i'm not surrounded by it or really in, t- in tune with it but uh between michael and and alan they're uh, to, to several different different speakers including rick scott uh um it, it reinforced how how big <laughs> Uh, those are grain exports, you know, and how important it is. And, um, and, and I mean, I think Rick Scott even says like, yeah, it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, the, the trade, it's, we're kind of the, the sacrificial lamb on the, the, the mm-hmm. berries and the, the veg, but, um, it, uh, it's really a daunting task for, for kind of even American Farm Bureau, you know, representing Florida ag is one thing, but then if you have to, you know, the USDA represent ag across the whole country, you know, you'll literally never please everyone because we do have competing right. interests and we, we like our exports, but to get those exports, you got to import. And it, so, you know, it's, it's, I mean, uh, it's quite a daunting task. I don't even know if it's a solvable, solvable problem, but, but it just kind of, kind of highlighted it and emphasized it and kind of brought it to at least my attention, how uh, I'll almost say, uh, with that that situation maybe right yeah definitely and i and i think too i you guys would agree with me on this is that we're not saying when we were trying to make a case for florida uh farmers uh we're not saying we um are against uh the midwest or you know what they're doing in in terms of you know we're not devaluing anything that they're producing or representing there but it's just that we need to have a seat at the at the table at the same table we we respect and value you know what they do and what they have and we're just asking for that same respect and value um on the vegetable side or or you know just you know smaller agriculture in general 
you know, we we heard we did hear several times also. Uh, yeah, we were really there at, a, at quite a unique time because they were, you know, coming down to the deadline. You know, the Senate uh, deliberating on the. I think it was the debt ceiling limit at the time, but but then also the this infrastructure bill, um, is, is, which is still looming, I guess. Uh, and I think our general consensus is though it's a big port port bill, and, and you know how could that ever pass? That's crazy. But uh, I mean, I don't know, probably four or five, six people all told us, including the, the Farm Bureau, um, you know, that the infrastructure bill was a, a quote unquote good bill by their terms, and um, which. You know, and I think a couple people even alluded to, yeah, you're going to have pork in all the bills. But um, so, you know, maybe maybe there's something to it after all. It just seems like quite a large number. Yeah, definitely. I think it did pass this week too. I think um, I think we found that, that's yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see you know what per state gets, um, and then how those things can impact agriculture. I know like the, the rural broadband, I know that's a completely separate discussion on how do we define rural and, you know, getting rural communities and getting broadband to that. But hopefully things like that have some type of impact on, on the industry and agriculture, but you're right. It's a, it's a big number. Um, and we haven't had legislation like that in a long time. So, um, you know, it, it probably, it probably was a, a very fun conversation to be a part of in DC when you're trying to figure that out, if it's, if it's worth it or, um, you know, weighing debt versus investment or, and all that good stuff. <clears throat> I will say one, one little fun, you know, I, I thought it was kind of a fun, uh, kind of change of pace, I guess, from, from our other speakers. Uh, we, had lunch at the Army Navy Club, and um, we had a couple couple of cybersecurity experts. I think one was from Homeland Security, and I don't I don't remember off the top of my head what which which the other uh, the other speaker was what, what department he worked in, but uh, they were no doubt security experts. And I mean, you know, uh, they they can scare you with all you know. Are, are you are you well protected? And probably, undoubtedly, none of us are. Are unprotected or are protected enough, but fortunately, we don't hold the secrets to national security <laughs> in our personal computers. But yeah, again, it was just a change of pace. But um, a couple of things: the ninety percent of the critical infrastructure uh, in, in our country is privately owned. Yeah, uh, you know, which which basically means that mm-hmm. you know the government doesn't doesn't have control over or, over how secure it is. But yeah, that was kind of interesting. But then also, and and along with that, they kind of uh, emphasize knowing, you know, where your information is stored, what, who owns wherever your, your cloud, cloud servers are, you know, uh, cause, cause as I said, China and Russia, uh, own a lot of them and they cautioned us on which drones we purchase because if it's owned by China, you know, the government of China, uh, you know, has, has the authority to, to tap into any, <laughs> any, any drones that are built in China, you know, just because they, they kind of own everything. But, um, but the, the, the interesting was that the target hack, um, that happened, you know, the, the data, data breach where they stole all the information was access to an air, air conditioning sensor, just a little a remote sensor that, you know, so that they could corporately monitor all of their stores. You know, that's how, you know, just one tiny little, liver of, of a crack in your in your security can 
can access, you know, can open up a company that big to uh, to a breach. That was Jim Platt and uh, Ron Keane from their both consist of the Cyber and Infrastructure Agency. And uh, when they they were telling us about the the fuel line hack and how that went down, and, and basically there was not a fuel shortage, but there was panic buying, which which you know through COVID we've seen that you know we uh, had to stock up on our toilet paper, but. Um, <laughs> But the the target hack was very interesting. That's how that's how they got in. It wasn't through a, a server database for credit cards or something like that. It was through their air conditioner system, and that was that was very uh, eye opening as well. How many people do you think went home and changed their Wi Fi password after that conversation, or when we got back from DC? None of us. <laughs> not, not me. <laughs> all that all that convinced me is I'm never going to be totally secure because I'm always going to forget something. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. The, the the point there was, you know, configure accounts with strong passwords. You know, uh, multi-level authentication. Authentication. Um, you know, or you know, I think the one guy was saying that his iPad has three different levels of identification on it, and it's just to operate his Alexa. You know, I mean, it was just something crazy like that. So. You know, it's it, it is something to consider. You know, particularly in agriculture, as we you know apply a lot more innovation and an automation, um, and a lot of our um, operations are becoming more connected. Uh, and it is something to consider, probably as as we move forward and and uh, apply those things and and connect more of our equipment together. And uh, that is, you know, it, it may be. A, we need somebody that will, you know, kind of help us out in agriculture too with that. I think that's a, a good a business for somebody in the, in the long haul to help us when we do connect things together. How can we make sure that everything is secure? Because at the end of the day, um, I, you know, knock on wood here, and I'm not trying to jinx this or anything, but when something like the target breach or the, you know, the, the fuel supply thing, when somebody hears food um, and food security, I could also see a lot of panic buying um, when something happens with that. So we, we don't, we don't want that to happen with us. So it's, it is an an important conversation uh, to think about and have as, as we continue to connect and automate our operations. Agreed. You know, the, uh, with everything becoming so automated, you know, the cost of chemical you know, constantly increasing, you know, that somebody hacks into a, a major food supplier or farmer's, uh, you know, database for for rates and calibrations and things like that, you know, how could that impact, you know, they could potentially kill a crop with, with the uh, misuse of a chemical or, or you know, their, their profits could be squandered because of, the, of a, a label rate that's, you know, changed because somebody hacked their system. Right. Let's go to Gettysburg. Uh, who wants to give me one of their uh, biggest takeaways from Gettysburg? Um, I, you know, a lot, a lot of good. I, I, I had no clue what to expect. You know, they kept harping on that it wasn't going to be a history tour. You know, it was, it's, it's a leadership tour through the, the eyes of history. Um, so, you know. So we just really didn't know what we were getting into, but uh, really every 
I guess I guess to give the listeners a, a description, we um, so Tom Vosser is a certified tour guide, um, you know, for Gettysburg. So he just, I mean, he knew the history of the of the battle and where we were standing, and I mean, directions, and it, it was it was really impressive. But so we we basically took a tour and, and made probably a dozen or so stops at different you know critical critical points, and you know, basically told us what happened that you know uh, a, a general gets get shot here you know he he wasn't even supposed to be down there but he got shot or 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 whatnot and we and then basically they posed us you know kind of to these groups who were broken off into questions about what would you have done what should they have done you know actually they posed the question to us first and then they told us what what actually happened i had that backwards but um, that was really cool lots of notes on that but there are a couple couple of quotes that um they that they gave us that really uh yeah, I still remember. The first one was, if, uh, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance a whole lot less. Uh, and that, you know, from a leadership standpoint, uh, you know, growing businesses, change is inevitable. We know that. But uh, that really rings home that you just need to embrace it and accept it and, and uh, attack it as best you can. And then the second one was uh, culture eats, uh, eats strategy for breakfast. And I just kind of <laughs> thought that was cool, you know, drive, drives home the, the point of, um, you know, you can prepare and and think and plan all you want, but if, if the culture of your your business, uh, you know, isn't isn't sound, you know, your buy-in's not going to be as good. Your 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 output results probably are going to are going to suffer as well. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on that. You know, there were some some things through that. You know, each so they would phrase the we start off the the thing with you know a team leader or you would be the general so to speak and you would you know talk with everybody in your group but you were the spokesperson but one of the things that that uh colonel mccausland said that you know uh, that i've again i've used that here with with my team is that as leaders we get to decide that's one of our our focuses as leaders you know ultimately we get all the information that is given to us by our our team and then we get to make the decision and you know you get to stand by that decision uh as you're going through um so there there were so many takeaways like that that there was there was other things of of communicating you know um that you know communication you know has to go up and then it goes laterally and it goes down um you know so often we we can communicate down to our our employees and things like that, but we don't communicate laterally in some of our business uh, sectors to our, our teammates that are, you know, um, yeah, at, the, at the same management level that we are sometimes. But uh, and then the other thing was loyalty, you know, uh, and and it particularly, uh, you know, it gave me some insight on that. But you know, loyalty oftentimes goes up to our upper management, you know, in the company, but it has to come back down. You know, that loyalty has to be there for, it's, it's a, a, a circle that has to be, has to be met from, from all angles. Yeah, definitely agree. A lot of, a lot of really good nuggets of information and, and quotes and, and strategies from, um, from our time in Gettysburg there. Was there a moment in Gettysburg where you, whether it was a particular monument or a stop where you kind of 
it was just like a light a light bulb going off how to kind of see like I see what they're talking about and this is what I can apply in my organization or business or was there a warm fuzzy moment uh, at some point um, that you recall during Gettysburg um, that again was that was that light bulb going off or just a really cool moment that you had Well, the, the warm, fuzzy moment for me was when we were having the bourbon taste, that bourbon going down my throat. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Agreed. <laughs> um, now, I think the dinner the first night with, with Colonel Bossler and Colonel McCausland and, and finally getting to hear what Diamond Six leadership was about and how they were going to tie the Battle of Gettysburg. Because, again, coming into it, it's like, okay, we're going to Gettysburg. It's great. Is this a you know, Diamond Six leadership is going to be there. What do they do? You know, um, you know, and, and re- hearing the uh, the videos that we, we watched for uh, before we got there, it was, you know, kind of, in my opinion, hard to put the two together. But after we were there eating dinner with them and hearing Colonel McCausland talk, it was, it made sense. Uh, yeah. I'd- as far as the light bulb moment, not necessarily, um, but but I will say another. Uh, again, this is just kind of an anecdote, a little little fact they gave us that we just realized helped realize the scope of the battle and just what what went on. Um, they said after the the three days of fighting you know, and all the they were surveying all the bloodshed and you know, having it because in the middle of summertime, so you can imagine the. You know the, the smell and whatnot, but that um, there were so many men and, and horses, and you know that that were there for the battle. That the uh, every well and creek had been had been drunk dry uh, within a five mile radius of the battle, and you know, just just the scope of that and the thought of that is pretty uh, you know pretty eye opening. Just kind of kind of helps it sink home just just what went on there. Definitely. Word on the street is that the alumni are going to um, visit Gettysburg and do a similar um, experience like we did um, uh, with the gentleman from Diamond Six and and spend some time in Gettysburg. What advice would you have for um, Wedgworth alumni members um, that would be going through that same experience? To go in there, go in there with an open mind. Don't don't try and anticipate anticipate what it is and and um you know uh, definitely wear comfortable shoes because because there's a lot of you know and it's on and off the bus and walking over rocks and climbing climbing a hill but you know to see where they where they were defending the position from but mm-hmm. um yeah I, I think just going in there with an open mind not that you know, just, yeah just don't go there with any preconceived notions I agree. It's you know, keeping the open mind as to, and and you know you only you only get get out of it what you put in it. Right. All right. One last question, um, and then we'll we'll wrap things up there. Um, we just got back from D.C. and Kentucky, being out of the state, and now we're our next seminar is back in the state in Polk County, Central Florida. Uh, do you think that? You're going to, when we, you know, we hear about the issues that we see in Polk County or, you know, just across the state in our time 
um, here in the next uh, next month there. Do you think anything has changed um, based on your experience in D.C., Gettysburg, and Kentucky? And will you look at um, in-state seminars or, you know, you know what we see in here in Polk County? Will you look at that different now that you've been um, together in D.C. and Kentucky for a little bit? I think certainly uh, from, from being in Kentucky, you know, Kentucky is much closer to uh, what our everyday lives look like versus, versus you know, D.C. and, and you know, our, our industry. Right. Um, I think, I think having the perspective of Kentucky and, uh, some, some, especially some of the rural parts of Kentucky, um, you know, rather than thinking, Oh, you know, you know, we, we live in some rural places. We were, we were truly in some rural places in Kentucky. So I think more from just, a not taking for granted where, where we live and, even the rural broadband, you know, I mean, I, there's very few places in, in our state where you can go and not have access to internet. And from what we're told, there's, you know, counties that, that probably hardly have uh, internet access, especially at your at your house out on your, your middle of 2,000 acre farm. So I think I think more just a perspective of, of of realizing the stuff we've got, we're we're doing pretty good here in Florida. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Carlton, because that was, that was something that, you know, bring that up now, The uh, when we were at the, uh, uh, <clears throat> speaking with the, uh, can't think of it now, the, the farmers, um, hang on a minute, the American Farm Bureau, uh, the, uh, the one lady that was speaking about the infrastructure package, uh, Emily, uh, I have yeah. a name. But she, she was from Kentucky and she was telling us about broadband and, uh, you know, the, basically that rural of what we know is rural here in Florida versus the rural of what we see in the Midwest. And mm-hmm. there's a huge difference in that. <clears throat> yeah. Even, even it was Emily, uh, Emily Buckman, just to give Buckman, yeah. shout out. But, uh, but even just, I mean, you know, you go home at night and you're trying to research a hookup of, looking for a part for something to fix or, you know, trying to research, a, you know, a chemical or, or whatever, you know, anything that probably all of us do in, in our, in our downtime, you know, they, from, from the story she, or the picture she painted, you know, at her own parents' house, uh, you know, they didn't have, if they had it, it was dial up, but it, it sounded like they just, they didn't have it. And that's, yeah. we just don't, we just don't realize that that even happened. You know, we're, we take it, like I said, we just take it for granted. So. A special thanks to Philip and Carlton for reflecting with us today and sharing their experiences from D.C. and Gettysburg. Up next is part two of our national seminar episode, and we look forward to sharing those experiences with you as well. Thanks for listening.